welcome to the 44th Street podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, the Supreme Court's decision on DACA. Danny Alisea, the incoming chair of the City Bar's Immigration and Nationality Law Committee, speaks with Trudy S. Rebert, an attorney with the National Immigration Law Center and a member of the Wolf v. Batala Vidal litigation team that challenged the termination of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, decided at the Supreme Court this past term, and Carlos Vargas, a plaintiff in the case who arrived in the United States at age four, is currently in law school, and is one of the 700,000 people who have received protection under DACA. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Danny Alisea. Good morning. My name is Danny Alisea, and I am an immigration supervisor at the Center for Family Representation. And I am here today um, on behalf of the New York City Bar Association, and in particular in my capacity as the incoming chair of the Immigration and Nationality Law Committee of the Bar Association. Today, we have a wonderful and insightful program for you um, about the Supreme Court's recent decision focusing on the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that are known as DACA. Today, as our guest, we have Trudy Rebert, who was part of the litigation team litigating the DACA case. And with her, we are also lucky to have one of the plaintiffs in the DACA case, Carlos Vargas. Good morning to you both, and welcome. Morning. It's nice to be here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Great. So just a little bit background of the Bar Association. As many of you know, we are a voluntary association of over 24,000 lawyers from all around the country and different practice areas. And we are committed to improving the administration of justice and the rule of law. Uh, The Immigration and Nationality Law Committee, of which I will be the incoming chair, has been very busy these last few years writing reports, writing recommendations, resolutions, and putting on programs and trainings about current events and trends in the field of immigration and nationality law. Today, we're going to focus on a subject that the Immigration Committee has taken on uh, many times and has has chimed in about many times, and that is the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, in particular because we are almost one month since the decision was issued by the United States Supreme Court in June of 2020. So before we jump in, I'd like to just give a little bit of background about our panelists. So Trudy S. Rebert is a staff attorney with the National Immigration Law Center, and her focus is on protecting immigrants, their civil and human rights in their workplaces and in their communities. And her current work included litigating cases challenging the Trump administration's termination of deferred action for childhood arrivals. A little bit of background about the uh, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. So I am actually quoting directly from Trudy's blog. Um, In her description, she indicates that DACA, which was first announced in 2012, has allowed hundreds of thousands of young people who grew up and went to school in the U.S. and are integral members of their many communities to come forward declare themselves to the government, and in return, receive work authorization and a measure of protection from deportation, end quote. 
I'll add that the, the, the DACA program is actually one of the first, is the first instance where deferred action, which refers to a law enforcement agency's prosecutorial discretion, their ability to choose what type, what their enforcement and priorities are. It's the first time that we actually had a form um, and a formal method of seeking deferred action. Since then, about over 700,000 people have obtained a protection under the DACA program, including Carlos Vargas, who is with us today. So Carlos, my first question is for you. You've lived in Staten Island for over 10 years now. Um, you arrived in the United States and were brought here around age four. You're also now in law school. And you've been interviewed many times, including by the Staten Island Live. Um, and I'd like to start with a quotation from that interview, which is you stating, quote, it's not just about me, the plaintiffs. It's about what we represent as a community, as a whole. I think we represent Staten Island, the New York community. So I don't feel like I'm there by myself as a plaintiff. Carlos, good morning. Welcome. Could you tell us a little bit more about who we are talking about when we refer to dreamers and specifically to documented individuals? Yeah, so DACA recipients are, are folks who were brought to the U.S. at a young age from different parts of the world, although primary DACA recipients are from Mexico. Um, there are DACA recipients who are from South Korea and so forth. It's a very diverse pool. So we also want to note that for my personal story, it's I came to the U.S. at the age of four. Um, for me, I from day one, I was aware of, um, of our immigration status. Uh, growing up primarily, we were first arrived to Brooklyn, which was primarily a very heavy immigrant um, community. Um, we knew that some folks where we lived in the beginning, we shared a room, um, sometimes wouldn't come home. It's a lot of times that word, um, he was arrested by ICE, he was, he was deported, was very common growing up. Um, so at the age of four, I was somewhat aware uh, of what the, what the word meant. And then unlike many DACA recipients who tend to realize or find out the immigration status, um, when they're preparing for college or, or high school and they're trying to obtain a driver's license, um, you know, for me, it felt like I didn't have the nine-digit access code to the American dream. Um, and, you know, like many, many young people, I've assimilated here to in the U.S. I know no other country than the U.S., right? I'm American in every way but, but one, which is on paper. Um, and I think that's really what we're trying to, what DACA recipients embody, right? They embody the American spirit, the American dream, um, but just that this country doesn't recognize them because of that nine-digit act or because of that um, paper that states you are a U.S. citizen. Um, and when you refer to that nine-digit access code, um, can you just be, can you tell us exactly what you mean by that? Sure. So the 90-digit access code, I would say it's like the, either Social Security or from, uh, or for immigration purposes, that, that A number, right? The USCIS number, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, quote, alien number. Not having that access code, really. It, it, it prevents you from really living a full, productive life in the U.S. Great. Thanks for sharing um, that background about yourself. Um, I also know a few other things about you, including the fact that you are in law school. And actually, I had the honor of meeting you around oral arguments time in November when I was an adjunct professor at CUNY Law. And we both were on a panel together to talk about the oral arguments. 
I remember your energy at the time and, and hearing you speak was actually quite powerful. And we'll hear you speak more, but um, one point that I don't want to go under understated is that you are, in fact, in law school, right, and studying at the City University of New York School of Law, where I also went. And so can you tell us a little bit more about your peers and other, specifically other people who are also plaintiffs, um, who I assume aren't all law school students, but have come from all different walks of life? Is there anything you can add about what that composition of plaintiffs and others like them looks like? Yeah, absolutely. I have the uh, utmost respect, right, for um, for all of them who uh, decided to put their name on, uh, on a legal document, uh, essentially against the U.S. government uh, and its current administration. But it's just beautiful. It's not doctor recipients is not just about the straight A student, about Victorian who is in, uh, in in universities, colleges, and law schools, right? Um, I think for the rest of the, the plaintiffs, they're they're also uh, parents, a mother, um, someone who's working at uh, the healthcare system, someone who is teaching English to the immigrant community, and I think that's really what the embodiment of that pool of plaintiffs is, and it's it's a representation of what the American community is as well. So definitely um, utmost respect for for all of them, and I, I think that this isn't just about us. Like I mentioned, it's really just about what we represent. Um, really, which is DACA recipients across the U.S. Great. Thank you for that, Carlos. Um, one other thing I'll add, I before this podcast, when we were speaking, you told me a little bit about your work at Make the Road, where you have been working for some time, and I believe our supervisor. And in that capacity, I think you also are working with people who are either documented or seeking to become documented. And you said something to me about your work where I believe you said that you helped people file for DACA even before you had your own DACA, which is interesting and commendable. Uh, I wonder if, since you are an expert on DACA applications, can you just tell us what the requirements are for DACA for anyone who doesn't know or needs a quick refresher? Basically, you have to establish that you entered the U.S. Uh, before the age of 16, that you have continuously resided since June of 2007, um, have been enrolled and have completed at least a high school um, or a GED equivalent, um, and that you have not um, been convicted of, uh, of certain uh, criminal um, interactions or significant misdemeanors. Um, and basically that you had no immigration status at the time of June 15, 2012. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, you're basically given the U.S. government your information for over a decade. And that information is not just the individual applying, right? Uh, for my for my case specifically, when I applied, I, I submitted documents of my mother who was undocumented, right? Who took me to the doctor, who took me to, to school. So we're essentially given that information, that those documents, to the U.S. government, and, you know, that's something that from day one was intimidating. Um, but, yeah, so essentially it's folks who, uh, folks who are eligible for DACA. Those are the, the basic requirements. It goes into the nitty-gritty of document collection, what satisfies sufficient evidence, such as school records, and so forth. Yeah, so as an immigration attorney, um, I've handled several DACA applications and renewals. And when you are doing the initial DACA applications and trying to meet those requirements that you just described, it's it's actually harder than it seems, right? So to meet those requirements, 
uh, presents challenges that are, for some people, insurmountable, right? If you can't pinpoint or prove certain dates or your presence. Um, but you talked, um, you bring up a, another good point about coming forward with information that the government, specifically immigration, wasn't necessarily aware of and putting yourself at risk of immigration enforcement and putting others at risk too. Right? So people who are seeking DACA are not just, it's not just about them, as you said, right? You're, you said you include information about your parents and I'm sure that other people who are seeking DACA status struggle with that same problem of, do I have enough evidence? What evidence can I come up with? And am I putting somebody else at risk? Okay. Thank you, Carlos. I think now I'd like to um, ask Trudy some questions. So Trudy, in short, right, so the Supreme Court decision, in order for a case to make it all the way up to the Supreme Court, there have to be disputes and legal questions. But in short, this case was about whether or not the decision to, to rescind the DACA program was done in a, in a manner that was lawful right? Whether it was explained thoroughly. So I would love to hear more about that from you. And since the Supreme Court in oral argument spent so much time on this threshold issue of reviewability, do we as the Supreme Court even have the ability to chime in? Uh, this was a point that was argued. I'll start with a quotation from Justice Ginsburg, whom I believe was the very first person to ask a question during oral arguments, where she says, there is a strange element to your argument. You argue that the decision to end DACA falls within an agency's discretion, but at the same time, you are arguing that the government was required to end DACA because the program was illegal, right? So there were a lot of confusing back and forth, but is there anything you can say for us about this question of reviewability, Trudy? Yeah, sure. And, and let me just sort of back up a minute and talk about sort of, I think you, you were sort of highlighting those two questions that were before the court. And so that first question that was before the Supreme Court was, you know, is is the was the Trump administration's um, rescission of DACA something that the court can review, or is that totally within the discretion um, of the executive? And I think you're you're right here to point out that there were a bunch of inconsistencies um, in the government's argument. And while there were a number of questions that um, focused on this at oral argument, I think you know the Supreme Court's opinion really um, moved through that fairly quickly. Um, and I think that was in line uh, with what we saw in a lot of the lower courts of that um, there were questions of reviewability, but it was pretty quickly dispensed with and moved on to the merits question. And that, that second question that was really before the court was then, you know, now that we've agreed that the court can review this, um, was the way that the government terminated the DACA program, was that lawful? Um, and specifically um, under the Administrative Procedure Act. So, you know, was the um, decision, uh, did it have sufficient reasoning behind it or was it, uh, you know, quote unquote, arbitrary and capricious? And that, you know, that was, I think, really, really the heart of the uh, Supreme Court's opinion that they wrote. And they found, you know, that it was not sufficiently reasoned. Um, and they sort of really focused on um, two key points there. You know, first, 
they essentially said that although like the attorney general had put out this uh, sort of brief letter that said that the that DACA was illegal, um, you know, the agency really still, still had a duty to exercise its discretion to explain um, how it was, um, why it was deciding to rescind. And so the chief justice in, in drafting the opinion also really talked there about the failure of the agency to distinguish between protections from deportation or, you know, what he sort of called forbearance and removal, which he said, you know, really lies at the heart of DACA and from some of the other things that sort of flow with DACA or, or you know, are available to DACA recipients like the work authorization, like advanced parole and some of those other things. Um, and then the second thing that the court really looked at um, was dinging the agency for not adequately considering the consequences of rescission. And so they talk about this as reliance interests, but you know, it's really about like the huge effects that uh, DACA has had, not only on DACA recipients, but also sort of those effects that radiate outwards to the children of DACA recipients, to like larger families, to um, the communities, um, and to employers. And so uh, the court was essentially said, you know, look, like you can, the agency still can, could rescind um, the program, but they have to sort of identify what those interests are and then also weigh those against other competing policy interests. And in some ways, you know, like they need to show their math, like they need to explain um, and, and reason through like why they are taking the decision that they did. Thanks. So the reliance issue was a big one. Um, and it makes me think about two um, connected points, and I wonder if you have any thoughts, and this is for uh, both of you actually, about when the DACA program first came into play in 2012, there actually were certain assurances that were given to DACA recipients about privacy and about information sharing, and specifically that their information would be um, kept separate and confidential uh, within United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, the benefits administering agency, and not shared with Immigration and Customs Enforcement or Customs and Border Patrol, which is which are the agencies that um, conduct enforcement. Right. So we have those assurances, and I, I do think while several people did not believe it or were scared to move forward, um, nevertheless. Lots of people applied based in part on the assurance that their information would be kept confidential. Fast forward to after the election, I think that people in this administration, even people within this administration, gave certain assurances that at some point about people who are documented are good, right? Like, we will take care of you. You're not going to face any additional problems. So is there anything you, you want to say, um, either of you, about those specific assurances? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for the person who basically is exposing himself to the to the government and with the that peace of mind to say, well, you know, my information is going to be protected, and not just my information, but also my my family who may come from mixed status family or or, or all undocumented. I think that's kind of like a betrayal of, this, of the agency, and I think it's part of the, the administration saying we're going to take care of these young people. It, I, I feel like it's empty words, right? Clearly actions speak louder than words and deciding to move forward um, and, and terminating the program, um, it just shows that really it, it goes back to, to day one where before DACA, right? For the DACA movement, for folks, we 
fought for DACA and we demanded that we get some sort of relief. Now our next demand is to get something more permanent. So I think really it's just we have to we have to get something more permanent um, from the community and keep fighting because you know a lot of uh, politicians will just say what sounds right at the time. Yeah, and oh, go ahead, Judy. Shortly after uh, the termination happened in 2017, uh, Milk and uh, Make the Road New York and Make the Road Connecticut um, filed a FOIA, Freedom of Information Act request, seeking more information about the termination. And one of the things that that um, FOIA turned up were actually some documents about information sharing and um, suggesting that, in fact, ICE has access to a bunch of um, the USCIS databases and information on DACA recipients. And that was obviously super concerning to us. Um, we're continuing to litigate that FOIA and to try to uncover more information about um, whether there's any protections, um, sort of about how and when that access happens, um, or sort of what other protections may be in place or how that information is being used. It's very concerning to us, and I think it's something that just should play into, I think, the calculation about when whether someone should apply for DACA not. And so that's one of the reasons, like one of the many, many reasons that we really encourage anyone that's thinking about applying for DACA or renewing their DACA um, to talk with um, and to get the advice of a trusted legal service provider um, or a DOJ um, accredited rep. And that, I think that that consult and that individualized advice is just really important. Yeah, I mean, especially because when DACA was created and with it, we now have this form that you have to fill out, um, which looks in many ways like standard immigration forms, which has extensive biographic information. So you are including information that is um, personal to yourself, to your family, and you have to file with your address, right? So you're, you are coming forward. And I, I do remember um, when this was happening, how even as immigration attorneys and professionals, we were you know, we didn't know what to make of these assurances, right? Like the idea that you could actually keep this completely secret or, or private and separate was aspirational and great and we wanted to believe it, but it, it certainly made even us nervous. Um, and fast forward, you know, it, it absolutely feels like a betrayal to so many people and it leaves so many people and families really exposed and vulnerable so thank you for that point about the FOIA litigation because it was my next question. So I will move on. Let's talk a little bit about the grassroots movement behind leading up to this decision, but actually that predates this decision by several years. We have uh, the Dreamer movement, which is has been one of the most prolific movements of our time, um, named after the DREAM Act, which has been a long-standing um, aspirational piece of legislation that would provide some type of pathway to status and eventual citizenship to young people, right, to the, to the people who call themselves now documented. Prior to that, they were referred to as DREAMers, and they really were mobilized, organized, powerful uh, voices throughout the entire country. And it looks like uh, as this case got closer and closer to the Supreme Court and even before that, the grassroots movement and the legal campaign united and worked together very effectively. So, Trudy, can you talk a little bit more about that prolific grassroots movement that went hand-in-hand hand with the legal strategy? 
I'm glad you asked about this. Like, I think it's so right to just really recognize the huge and like incredibly courageous organizing by immigrant youth that led even to the creation of DACA itself, right? It's because of folks that were organizing, that were telling their stories, that were sitting in, that were getting arrested, and really pressuring the government that was the reason DACA was created in the first place. And that organizing has continued and has just been incredibly critical to defending DACA and winning this case. But, you know, defending DACA broadly, uh, defending it on the Hill, in the courts, uh, in in our communities. Um, and that power, I think, that, that immigrant youth have built over time has really shifted the public sentiment and really, I think, brought the public along in a really powerful way to have a much better understanding of what was facing, what is facing documented individuals um, and, you know, their communities and their families. And so I think what that meant was that when the Trump administration tried to terminate DACA, legal organizations like us were, like, filed a letter, you know, that very day with the district court to amend our complaint and to challenge the termination as well. Um, And, you know, shortly after that, we saw this like 10 cases filed across the country, five in California, two in New York, two in DC, one in Maryland, and a huge and broad coalition um, of states, of community organizations, universities, civil rights organizations, grassroots organizations that that were plaintiffs and came forward and said, no, this is not lawful, this isn't correct, and and we're gonna fight for it. Um, And that I think also meant that when when we got to, the Supreme Court, it, that organizing then created the conditions where we had over 30 amicus briefs on our side. And, you know, one of my colleagues counted up how many signatories that was, and that was over 1,400 uh, different groups and, and people that um, signed those amicus briefs. So I think, you know, this case um, is really a, a byproduct, I think, in many ways of that um, just enormous organizing effort. And and our approach at, at the National Immigration Law Center has really been an approach of centering our plaintiffs um, and the communities that we're working with. And so, you know, I think that what that means is that in our lawyering and our legal strategy, we listen carefully to what our plaintiff's goals are, and we're in very close contact with them. Um, and that decisions, you know, don't always come out the way that we think they might, like that the lawyers might at, at the beginning. Um, uh, it also means, you know, that uh, when we go to court, there are always um, plaintiffs and other directly impacted folks that are attending those hearings, in part to remind the court of what's at stake. When we have press conferences, uh, yes, there are some lawyers speaking, but you know, it's also Carlos <laughs> is speaking, other plaintiffs, um, other other members of Make the Road New York. Plaintiffs in our case attended some of the key depositions, um, which I think was pretty unusual and enabled them to sort of sit and watch as uh, defendants were explaining, you know, why why and how they decided uh, to terminate uh, DACA. It also means, you know, I think it's just recognizing in part that directly impacted folks are often their own best advocates. And, you know, as lawyers, we can help sort of present their arguments in court, um, but that's not that's not the only space that we're um, fighting. Um, and I think it's really about partnership and using all the various tools at our disposal um, in order to, uh, to fight for justice. Great, and Carlos, anything you wanna add um, about the voice of the dreamers and people who are documented and the plaintiffs and people similarly situated and because you actually work 
Um, in addition to Rooney Law School, you work at Make the Road, which is New York's, one of New York City's biggest and premier grassroots organi- member-led organizations. Or do you have anything to add about the grassroots campaigning and you know, your voice and the voice of people like you and what that was like to work hand-in-hand with, with the legal team? Yeah, I think it was definitely uh, an experience um, that was very fruitful. I think that as advocates, we took this fight to to the streets, whether it's holding rallies, holding marches. Uh, we took the fight to our elected officials, and uh, and now uh, we actually took the fight to to the courts. Right. So I definitely think that this work has been has been crucial, and and really the the movement hasn't been by. Um, one organization or one person or one plaintiff, but it has been collectively as a whole. Um, and it's definitely great to include um, directed, impacted individuals to hear these uh, positions, right? The, to go to court and really see what the argument uh, of the government is. So it's definitely been something that um, has been powerful. It hasn't always been sunshine and rainbows for me personally, just going out there and telling my story in front of the media. A lot of times I live in a little bit conservative borough um, where I have been called out by people and saying, well, what do you think you're entitled for? Um, so it, it, it comes with that. It comes to the territory, I'd say. But I think ultimately it's worth it, right? When as a, as a legal provider, I'd make the road New York, when you have a community member telling you they're afraid, telling you that their parent might be deported. For me, it's just been every time... I go in front, I know that it's not for me, but it's for my community. And, and I think that gives me the power and motivation and really to know that I'm not alone in this fight. I have great um, legal advocates, great organizations, powerful attorneys like Rudy who, who have my back and, and vice versa. We have each other's back. And I think really that's what community is. Great. And is that how um, the Home Is Here campaign came to be? Um, so that's one of the campaign slogans that we've heard and seen a lot about. Can you tell us about that particular slogan, how that was cre- created, or what you know about it, Carlos? Yeah, I mean, so I, the home now was created um, after the administration essentially terminated the program, um, and it was just—it was not just for DACA recipients, but it was also for folks such as who are protected under TPS temporary protected status. And really send a message out there um, that this is our home, right? We're not going to go anywhere. We're going to continue to fight. Uh, and because of our American values, we're going to fight for what we believe in. So uh, folks nationally you know, mobilized and, and really carried this message along that this is our home, right? And it's definitely been a powerful. I mean, this, there was a, a march from uh, New York, I believe, where it again all the way to Washington, D.C., right? So... They, they, they put their bodies on the line and they really sent that message to to, our, to this administration that home is here and we're not just going to allow you to, to end our lives, right? We're going to keep fighting. Um, so it's definitely a very, uh, very powerful, um, historic moment that young people really show, show and fight for what they believe in. Thank you, Carlos. So, Trudy, you talked a little bit about all of the multi-layered components of the case, but even procedurally, all of the lower court cases, all of the filing, we talked about depositions, and I hope this isn't an overshare, but this was also your first Supreme Court litigation, if I'm correct. Um, So what was that like? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was, um, for me personally, it was a huge learning experience. Like, I think there have been so many unusual things about this case um, that you're forced to constantly learn. <laughs> so it's, you know, learning procedural things, even like this case was, this set of cases was really unusual in that um, we ended up at the Supreme Court directly out of the district court. So we had the district court opinions um, in New York, California, D.C. that required the government to um, keep the DACA program open for renewal for people that had already had DACA. And then, you know, we the government appealed to the circuit courts, but before uh, those courts could rule, they asked um, the Supreme Court to review. Uh, it's a, you know, unusual process, um, one that I w don't think I was even aware of before I was working on this case, but called uh, cert before judgment. So, you know, there's things like that that uh, litigation will throw at you and, and you figure out and you strategize and, and make the best decisions that you can. You know, and then there were other things that we had to, like, I personally had to learn, like, you know, the first time you go to the Supreme Court, it's, you know, how do you even get into the court? Just because your counsel working on the case doesn't mean that you get to sit in the courtroom. Um, there are three different lines to get into the court on oral argument day. There's a public line. Um, and so, you know, folks that wanted to get into the courtroom uh, that weren't lawyers uh, were waiting in that line oftentimes for days in advance. Um, and, you know, we were able to get, uh, I think it was more than 50 DACA recipients into the courtroom um, through that line, which is really, really incredible. You know, even as attorneys, we have a special line that we can go into, but it's still, it's a small courtroom. And so I think we got into line at like 1.30 or 2 a.m. Um, that day. Um, it was cold. It was raining. <laughs> um, it was, it was a long night. Um, uh, so, you know, there's just things like that, that I think one has to learn and that are surprising. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's also, I think it's, it's just a real, I think, um, privilege to be able to um, accompany and fight alongside um, folks like Carlos and, and Make the Road New York and other organizations and people across the country um, to bring this case um, and to defend it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And I think there's also just, I don't think this is every Supreme Court, but in a case like this where you have, you know, nine underlying cases, what had been nine underlying cases at the district court that are then suddenly consolidated for our argument, it just also means that there's a lot of thinking about strategy and um, also just, you know, having to work with a huge number of lawyers to make sure that um, you're presenting the best case and the best arguments that you can uh, before the court. So I think, you know, there there's sort of the, the learning about the law, the learning about the procedure, and, and also just, you know, figuring out uh, how, how to bring a case like this. Wow, 1.30 in the morning, in the rain, you would think that uh, the buildup to the actual oral, oral arguments would, and everything you filed and prepared would be the hard part. <laughs> um, well, uh, thanks for that insight. Um, Carlos, I assume that this was also your first time um, being part of a Supreme Court litigation. Uh, what was that like for you? It was a, a beautiful moment um, from the process of getting there and really seeing the, the marchers who were in D.C. And for me, just going in the line, walking in, having, having been in a building where decisions have been made in U.S. history. But really, what really made it for me was the crowd. The crowd who was there cheering for us, were waiting for us to support um, I remember going in and in the hallway before getting to the court, you heard people outside chanting, home is here, undocumented, unafraid. 
And it was definitely a, a very powerful experience. Um, every every second of it, from waiting in the lobby, from going inside the courtroom, seeing um, Justice Ginsburg come in and being kind of like starstruck with the justices. And then really just the, the gal- legality of it, having someone argue essentially your life in front of you and what the, what the merits are. Um, and then, of course, for me, just leaving the courtroom and having fellow DACA recipients like me or, or allies or community members just holding hands. One of the, uh, the plaintiffs in, in, in the New York lawsuit, uh, Martin, I remember just walking out and he grabbed my hand and he just picked and he raised it. And then you hear the chance of almost here, uh, documented. It was such a powerful um, experience for me. Uh, and really, it just shows that we are in, we are in this together. Uh, and it, it was great. It was definitely great. I, I remember being in law school with Professor uh, uh, Robson, who teaches constitutional law, and really having the like a uh, hands-on experience of what goes into um, oral arguments. So it was, it was very powerful. And I think, you know, in a case like this, uh, as an attorney, you're also just aware that you there are multiple audiences that, um, that you're speaking to, right? Like there is the audience of the court, uh, which is going to decide the fate of the case. Um, there is the broader public. Um, and then, you know, there's also, and I think this is also what I think why that, experience of coming out of the court was in part so powerful, um, but there's also that audience of DACA recipients themselves um, around the country and being able to collectively send the message um, that the movement and, and folks around the country have your back um, and that you're not alone uh, and that people will be here to fight with you no matter what happens in the court. Thank you. The, the law student in you, Carlos, to be starstruck by our Justice Ginsburg, um, who uh, is beloved by the New York City Bar Association, um, among many others, I'm sure, and has done a distinguished lecture for the Bar Association many times. Now, you were describing that moment when you left handheld with other plaintiffs from the Supreme Court building. Um, and I just hope that anyone who's listening um, for could really, you know, you can't duplicate that, but it was caught on video and Trudy shared um, some footage or a link to footage of that, which was incredibly powerful. And I'm hoping that maybe um, anyone who is listening to this podcast can also click on that link and see just how powerful that moment was when you all exited and there was chanting. Uh, Really, really powerful, beautiful moment. So, Trudy... Inside of the courthouse, as oral arguments are happening, what were you thinking? What was that like? I think, um, in part, <laughs> in part, there's just I think uh, as someone watching and um, having worked so much on the case, there's both excitement and and anxiety, um, and just you know wanting wanting to make sure the argument goes well, um, but also you know there's not much you can do except sit back and listen and take copious notes <laughs> um, in, while you're in the courtroom itself. Yeah, I think it was like a, a huge range of emotions um, and uh, just trying to take it all in um, and support our, our plaintiffs and the other, the other documented folks that, that were there. Great. Okay. So oral arguments happen. Um, let's move forward to what um, let's talk about after the oral arguments. And I'm hoping we can also share with anyone who listens to this podcast a link to your 
post-oral arguments blog, Trudy, which I thought was wonderful and really talks about what happens next or what it was like in the oral argument. There's a lot of coverage about this opinion, obviously from all different stages. If you looked at a lot of the coverage um, or articles written about the oral arguments and describing it, I think one thing that I saw a lot of was that they were torn. Um, And I don't know if that was your impression, Trudy or Carlos, whether or not it was clear if the justices, either individually or as a whole, were leaning one way or another? I think uh, one thing that stood out to me was uh, Justice Sotomayor, where she, um, you know, did argue the legality, but also, you know, with the reliance issue, uh, really stayed out there. You know, these are young people who are working, who are contributing to society, and now they will be taking away this benefit. So I think that was powerful because that's really what uh, a lot, what I felt personally, and and having a, a, a justice um, point that out to the court was was very very powerful, you know. There and then there was Justice Roberts with um, just some of the questions were kind of maybe real, maybe feel like well maybe we might not win this decide in the court, um, but it was definitely just. Um, Things that were pointed out with the, the amicus brief as well, with corporations, uh, all that was pointed out and, and made clear for the record was, was definitely insightful. Yeah, I don't think Justice Sotomayor was torn. That was pretty evident in her um, questioning and in her decisions. I think her comment in the courtroom was something about uh, ruining people's lives. Mm. Like she, I think, really, really got what was at stake and was trying to drive that home for the court. Uh, yeah, that was very dramatic and, and and quite powerful coming from Justice Sotomayor, who also, um, you know, was comes from New York, where you are, where you've lived and were raised, Carlos. And um, so I am sure that that was meaningful to hear from Justice Sotomayor. So we have the oral arguments; they happen, they're recorded, they're, um, and then we have to wait about seven months from the date of oral arguments before we actually know what's going to happen. And at this point, many of us in the immigration advocacy world were worried, right? We, we didn't know, right? The descriptions about the court being torn, it was hard to know whether or in what direction the decision would go. So what was it like for both of you? Like, if you can remember about one month ago, as we're all sitting around waiting for this decision, which we know is coming out in June, we're waiting, we're anticipating. There are things that you do in preparation and in anticipation of it going one way or another. But if you can share what it was like for you about a month ago, waiting for it to come out, and then when the decision actually comes out. You know, I think that the opinions the sort of quote unquote like big opinions often come out in June, um, but you never know. And so for us, this didn't start in June, right? We were prepping, we were on SCOTUS watch, um, you know, at 10 a.m. or 9.30 a.m. and uh, many mornings since I think January or February. Um, so that was a lot of mornings of anxiety. <laughs> um, it was, uh, you know, a lot of sort of waiting uh, and refreshing, especially sort of in this strange COVID world that we find ourselves in of being on SCOTUS blog and on the Supreme Court website and like frantically refreshing and refreshing and then 
you know, emailing out to um, folks about what, what had happened and, you know, for many mornings it was just, you know, no decision today. So I think there was a lot of anxiety across the board about what would happen and how the court would rule. I think on the, the legal side and um, of the many organizations that were sort of involved in preparing for some kind of outcome, um, we were preparing, you know, since the beginning of the year and really trying to prepare for any outcome because I think, um, you know, one of the things the census case taught me in part is that you just never know what the court is going to do until until you see what they do. So, yeah, I think it was a lot of preparation, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of a lot of waiting with bated breath. I think for me, it was in a, an emotional roller coaster. I think that um, at one hand, I wanted to get a decision just to say, okay, let's just get this over with, just pull the band-aid off. And on the other hand, I was like, well, you know, if, if the longer we wait in case the court decides against us, we still have time. Uh, for me, I was doing a numbers game. I was like, well, I have uh, nine months before my renewal. If I wait one more day, I could get an extra, you know, day for, for my work permit to expire. Um, but I think that was the beginning. I think ultimately once we started, um, I started waiting. I really, as a community advocate, um, I just, whatever the decision was, I was hoping for the best, but frankly, the worst. I was just like, we're going to organize. Regardless of the decision, if, if it's not in our favor, we're going to keep fighting. And really, that's what gave me that that hope to keep to keep moving forward. Um, but yeah, it was definitely an emotional rollercoaster. As someone who works directly with impacted uh, folks, having that constant phone calls, messages, hey, any update of what's going to happen? Can I renew? It's like we live in the moment over and over again. But really, just having that peace of mind and saying to myself, we're going we're gonna to move forward. We're going to move forward. We're going to keep fighting. We're planning for, for the worst, and we're going to be victorious ultimately. Nerve-wracking indeed. Emotional roller coaster indeed. I remember last month what that was like. And so, Trudy, you mentioned that the big decisions are usually reserved for the end of the term. I actually was expecting this decision to come out even later than it did. I thought we had like another week. It ended up coming out on the 18th of June. And I thought, you know, I'll have until next week to deal with whatever the re- reality is. But in the meantime, you know, that week and even in the time leading up to it, you can't help but think about what you can do, how you can prepare, and the people who are impacted, what, if anything, we can do to be to, to be a support system legally, socially. And, you know, that question actually became more, it was a deeper question than you would think at initial thought, right? So on the one hand, what about my clients? What can I do for them? What info can I provide? What support can I provide? But it's way beyond that, right? So it's my staff. It's my staff who are impacted or not, people who care, my friends, our neighbors, our students, right? Um, So we were surprised by the timing and pleasantly surprised by the eventual results, but we didn't know what to do or what to expect. And, you know, a lot of coverage was given to the decision and the reactions to it. A lot of positive uh, footage and celebration. There was one entity that was not as happy and a bit outspoken, right? United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, which is, again, the benefits administering arm of the Department of Homeland Security. So, 
the agency where you file your application for DACA, they actually came out with an official statement about the decision, which was not a long one, but basically today's court opinion has no basis in law and merely delays the president's lawful ability to end the illegal Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Amnesty Program. And then there's one other paragraph, but that's the gist of it. So any reaction to that, Trudy? Yeah, I mean, I think that their statement is incredibly worrisome. Um, And today is, if I'm counting correctly, it's been 28 days since the Supreme Court issued its decision. The Supreme Court decision remanded the the rescission of DACA back to the agency, which means that the 2012 DACA program, the full program, should be back in effect, um, meaning that the agency should be accepting applications from first-time DACA applicants, from folks that have never had DACA before. And yet, we still haven't seen any indication that they're planning to comply uh, with the Supreme Court decision. There hasn't been any guidance that has been released on their website about how they're planning to accept initial applications or, or what, what their plans are. So, you know, I think those of us at Milk and, and lawyers around the country and, uh, you know, folks across the movement um, are watching carefully and are prepared to continue fighting to make sure that the government respects the Supreme Court opinion um, and, and the law. That's right, because um, there was a time when they attempted to rescind it where only removals were being accepted, but that it was clear that the administration would not accept any new applications for first-time DACA applicants, right? So as you stated, this Supreme Court decision will have made it so that it seems that the USCIS should be accepting first-time applications. And I guess um, this might be a good place to ask Carlos, who actually has been filing them, right? Like Make the Road, I believe, is filing them for a lot of people. Um, What has that been like? What has your work been like since the decision, Carlos? Um, And it might still be too early to really draw conclusions about um, these first-time applications, but any insight um, that you can provide, I'm sure it would be helpful to any of our listeners. Yeah, I mean, so it's been um, it's been a large volume. We are actually holding um, clinics, virtual clinics due to, the, due to COVID, uh, where we have folks just give us, we review folks' documents and see if it's up to par with, with the application um, a lot of questions, not just about initial doctors, but also about advanced parole. And we kind of have to just tell them that although they should be submitting those applications and, and receiving them, um, it's still a risk that it, it might be denied. Um, so we are just preparing as much and sharing information to the communities. Right now, we have upcoming doctor clinics here in St. Allen virtually as well. And it's just been it's been also difficult because of the pandemic. A lot of uh, sites like school records are difficult to get. Medical records are difficult to get for the evidence. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's great. On one hand, you're telling folks, yeah, start preparing. Um, but also, you know, it might not be approved. And you, you're also sharing your information with the government. So definitely, definitely, we encourage folks to start getting documents and definitely go to a trusted legal provider that can give them more details. And really, it, at this point, it's hard to say if they're going to approve them or not. Um, I think we're aware that some organizations outside of Make the Road have submitted, and I believe some have been denied. I'm not sure if it was the basis on because the USCIS or is not accepting the applications, but um, 
it's a little bit unknown. Although we have we got a decision from the team court in our favor, it's still vague on what that means. Thank you, Carlos. Um, just a quick plug for the New York City Bar Association, which within it has a subsidiary nonprofit organization, the City Bar Justice Center, which also is one of the nonprofits within New York City that's helping people with DACA applications and DACA renewals and questions relating to DACA. And certainly when I was a Fragment Fellow about five years ago within the City Bar Justice Center, um, the DACA work was a big part of our docket. And so as an attorney or an immigration attorney in New York, we're part of, um, I'm a part of different listservs and coalitions. And so we do see a lot of emails back and forth about people who file for DACA or who are thinking about filing for DACA and people are filing the applications. I've only heard recently of rejections, not necessarily denials. A denial probably would take longer because it assumes that the agency is adjudicating the application and then making a determination that you're ineligible. I've only seen one or two references to people who have filed since the Supreme Court decision and have gotten rejection notices. I don't know if that's the same for you, Carlos, or not, but Trudy, can you, do you have any thoughts about what we can look forward to, right? So the Supreme Court makes its decision. It's been almost a month. Is there any preview or anything we can expect in terms of um, when that decision will be given practical and actual um, effect within the agencies? Yeah, I mean, well, I would say since it's already been 28 days, um, it's looking like we may have to go back to court uh, in order to enforce that Supreme Court judgment. So, I mean, I think two things that are two activities that are already sort of on our radar. Um, first, the case in Maryland. So um, that was a case brought by Casa and Chula and uh, some other individuals and, and organizations. Um, the judge in that case has already set a hearing. Um, that was actually a case that was a little separate. It was not heard an oral argument um, with the other cases at the Supreme Court, um, but that uh, case is already back down at the district court, and there may be some movement there. I imagine that the government may be asked to indicate what their plans are. I also think, you know, other lawyers, uh, other legal teams may be um, preparing to, to act in some sort of way. I think the other, you know, thing that we're watching is that um, in addition to the cases that were challenging the termination of DACA, um, Texas and a, a number of other states filed litigation um, in, in Texas uh, before which in that litigation is before Judge Heenan, who was the judge that had ruled on DAPA, the program for parents, many years ago. Texas and the other states are challenging in that case the legality of DACA itself. And so that case, uh, the district court judge had stated um, while the Supreme Court was sort of pending, pending the decision from the Supreme Court, but has already asked that the parties sort of submit a plan to him um, about how the case should proceed there. Um, and so that's... Uh, that filing is due um, next Friday. Uh, it is something, I think, what happens in that court is something that we will also be watching um, and watching carefully to see sort of what how that proceeds. So is it um, accurate to regarding that Texas case, which I'm not as familiar with, um, but is it accurate to say that unlike your case, which was about the termination of DACA, that Texas, the issue in Texas is whether DACA was legal um, at the outset? Yeah, that's exactly uh, the question that's sort of being litigated in that court. Um, and so, you know, 
we are watching that carefully because obviously um, a negative ruling from that court would impact uh, DACA as well. Great. Well, thank you for that information. Um, it sounds like your organization, uh, amongst many others, and the grassroots uh, movement and contingents are ready for whatever is the next plan of action, whatever is in store, and whatever is the next step in the fight um, for uh, the documented community and for resolution of this issue and finality. So I think that those were actually all of my questions for this podcast. I'd leave it to you um, uh, to leave to give us any closing remarks you'd like. Um, and in particular, Carlos, as one of the plaintiffs, is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with about this issue and the, the future? The floor is yours, or the microphone is yours. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely that the fight is not over, um, clearly, as we see. Um, we're going to continue fighting um, regardless of what the outcomes are until our community, not just the DACA recipients, but our 11 million undocumented community members who are living in the country um, until they have a pathway and a just, uh, a just uh, opportunity to live in this country. Um, but yeah, definitely keep on, we're going to keep on fighting and really just urge folks, listeners who are eligible to vote, you know, it's a big election um, time. And whether it's not just the presidential elections that matter, it's also the local and, and state. Here in New York, we got the New York State Dream Act. So all these elections and races are, are crucial for sure. Um, but yeah, the, the fight continues. And, you know, really the, the power of telling your story, I always say, if you don't tell your story, someone else is going to tell them for you. Um, but yeah, so I'll just leave with that. And um, thanks for having me. Well, Carlos, those are uh, wonderful remarks, but you then created a question for me <laughs> in doing so, which is positive thinking, right? So the DACA program continues um, and we win that fight. What's next, right? Is it um, enough that the DACA program continues as it is, or is there something else? That's my last question, Carlos. Yeah, no, definitely. I appreciate it. I think that it's not just about DACA. We, DACA was, was created from the get-go to be a temporary uh, relief, right? We need something more permanent um, because having to live your, your life in two-year increments is it, pretty tiresome. And again, we're going to push till we get a permanent solution, a pathway to uh, citizenship for sure. Thank you, Carlos. Uh, Trudy, anything from you to close? I mean, I think you should just end with Carlos's quote. <laughs> um, yeah, I can say something, but I, I think his is really powerful. Sure. Yeah, um, I agree. So I want to thank you, Carlos Vargas, Trudy Webert. You were wonderful. I hope you had a good time on this podcast. It was a pleasure and an honor to conduct this podcast with the both of you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.